Well, this morning our reading comes from Revelation 21. Revelation 21, and we'll read the first eight verses this morning. As we think on this theme of conflict, of war, and of peace, we hear these words coming from the very end, or near the very end, of the last book of not just the New Testament, but the whole Bible, where we hear of the hope of the future, where John tells us in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to Him for it and for our reading of it this morning. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we give You thanks that our confidence, our hope is not based on our own effort, but Lord, comes from Your faithfulness. And Lord, we thank You that You have been so very faithful to us all through the course of our lives. And Lord, we ask that as we gather before Your Word this morning, Your faithfulness might continue. Lord, that You would bless us as we read Your Word. Give us understanding. Lord, give us wisdom that we know how best to put this into practice today. And Lord, we pray that as we meet you in your word, we might grow a little further in our relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless us as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. When we come to Remembrance Sunday, uh, we talk a lot about peace and about hope. All of that goes with that backdrop we have, the heritage we have in this country of conflict to significant global-scale conflicts and numerous other ones uh, down through the decades and, in fact, the centuries of our country's history. And it's a big challenge to know what, what do we do, what do we say in the face of all of this. We recognize, on the one hand, that we want to honor those who've sacrificed so much. They've given their very lives, in many cases, in order that we might know freedom and peace, that we might know liberty and uh, the world that we enjoy today. And yet, at the same time, there is a big challenge that, that their sacrifice for all that it has achieved a temporary peace has only ever lasted for a time. 
before the next conflict rolls around. And although the world has changed since the last great global conflict, the Second World War, in fact, war itself has changed, the nature of war has changed, conflict is still there, and it only takes two minutes looking um, across our world to see numerous countries in which there are civil wars currently being waged. There are quiet wars being fought between nations that never feature in uh, the news because we're not interested in them in this country. They're too small, or the countries are too insignificant for us, from our perspective, to really care about. So, what do we do? Is it only for us to look to the future as we read in this passage where John sees a future glorious hope where there is no more war and say, well, there won't be any war someday? Is that it? Is that the best we have? Just a wistful hope that one day we will enjoy an eternal life without conflict? Or do we hope for something more than that? I think this morning we hope for something more because of the nature of the reading that we've had this morning. In fact, because of the nature of the whole book of Revelation where that reading comes from. Uh, we have a, a, a Bible study on Monday night for some of the younger guys in the church, and we've been going through the book of Revelation, which has been a rather interesting challenge for us to grapple with. And one of the things we've pointed out, we've noticed as we've gone through the book, the book tends to be associated only with the future, only what is to come someday, whenever that day will be. And yet the book is written to a suffering church in the first century. And so for it to make any sense to those people who first read it and who have read it in the 2,000 years since this book was written, it must mean something to them in their day beyond just, there will come a day when all this will cease. So, carry on. It's very clear the book of Revelation is in many ways a very practical book. For all, there is huge amounts of um, vivid imagery and, and metaphor used to paint a picture of the present day and the future. It's a book that's supposed to give us hope now. It's supposed to help us understand what we're supposed to actually do on Monday morning when we wake up and go and live our lives. It's not simply supposed to be this wistful hope of a better future. These Christians are beginning to suffer terrible persecution, and following on from the writing of Revelation, they're going to be burned alive in the streets of Rome. They're going to be thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum and eaten simply for being Christians. And so, for this book to be meaningful, to be helpful for, for them beyond a wistful hope of life to come, it has to help them know what they should be doing here and now. And it's very much the case that that is what the book is for. It's what the book does, and it's what we are supposed to understand in it when we read it together today. What are we supposed to do in the face of war? Are we supposed to hope that war in our world will be done away with? The answer is no, and the answer is no because we read elsewhere in the book of Revelation, there will always be war. There will be war right up until the very end. However, Christians have something unique about their lives, about the way that we live our lives in this world that helps us deal with that problem, not dispensing with war, but addressing it in such a way that war no longer holds for us the same dread, the same terror that it holds for everybody else. This does something to the Christian that helps them live out their lives in the face of dire circumstances of terrible conflict and oppression. 
such that it is almost as if it doesn't touch them. And I find this fascinating. The whole focus of Revelation really is in addressing power in the world. Who has power and who should have it? And how should power be used in this world? And ultimately, the whole thrust of Revelation is that power is focused really exclusively in one place, and that is in God Himself. God is the one who is in control. And this is the ground of the hope of believers in the first century. You're going to suffer. You might suffer way beyond anything you could possibly have imagined. However, you are not without hope because your God, the God who has saved you and made you his own son or daughter, has the ultimate power. He is in ultimate control, and so you have nothing to fear, for he will carry you through whatever circumstances you are facing. He will never allow you to be overwhelmed. He will never allow you to be taken out of his hand. You are utterly secure in him. And we find this language cropping up all over the place in the New Testament, and perhaps the most clear expression, the most succinct expression of it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the apostle Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The way that Christians face the future, knowing that war will be a constant problem, conflict will be a constant problem, is to see its power over them cut off. To see the power of sin, the power of death cut off, so it is no longer something to be feared for the Christian. It's to be acknowledged, it's to be addressed, but it is not to be feared for what can it do to you if its power is ultimately broken. And the answer is that we conquer in this life. We conquer sin and death. The power that they have over us, they will still be present, but their power is broken. We conquer not with swords and with guns, not with technology, not even through diplomacy, but we conquer through the power of Christ in the world. And in the book of Revelation, the whole book begins with an address that Jesus makes to seven churches in the ancient world. And in these churches, he says to each one of them, regardless of how well or how badly the church is doing, how poor or how wealthy they are, or how big or how small they might be, he adds a note at the end of his feedback to these churches that they ought to go on and conquer. They should be victorious over sin and death. He says to the church in Ephesus that they are to conquer through knowing God, through knowledge of God leading to greater love for God, so that they might serve Him and they might serve the community around them by witnessing in love to this God. They conquer through that. He says to the church in Smyrna that they are to conquer the power of sin and death by staying faithful. Even to the point of death, they might have to pay the ultimate price, but that will be worth it. For when you stay faithful to God, it is a sign of your faith and the centrality of your faith in Christ and the one who will always stay faithful to you, even if you fail in your faithfulness. And you conquer in this way, and for you there will be no second death that this passage mentions. 
that is, that we all die. It is appointed for all men to die once. But after death, there comes judgment, and there will be a second death for those who fail in that judgment. And that is everlasting destruction, what the Bible calls hell. That is a place that is separated out, as it were, from the love of God in His um, restraint, as it were, on creation. Hell is, is a place where people get ultimately exactly what they want, life without God. And yet, what that is, is a life without love, a life without joy, a life without satisfaction, a life without fulfillment, an everlasting torment. And we can understand that when we think of it in that way. For the believers in Smyrna, there will be none of that because they will conquer by staying faithful to the one who's faithful to them. To the church in Pergamum, we find that they are to conquer by staying true. It will look like it makes sense for them to chase after all sorts of other approaches to loving God and serving Him. And yet, if they stay true to the way they have been taught, Jesus says, they will conquer. They will succeed. They will claim this prize. Sin and death will hold no fear for them. And they will have this wonderful future where it will never touch them, this future we've read of here, where there will be no more suffering, no more sickness or death. The church in Thyatira are to conquer by holding fast to what they have. Again, the temptation for them will be to detour off into other interesting things, things which on the surface may not seem all that bad, and yet Jesus says, don't do that. Don't go there. Hold fast, and you will conquer. The church in Sardis is told to conquer by being holy, to repent of their sin and to commit to following Christ and to trust themselves to Him, that He will always lead them in the right direction. And although it will be a challenge, it will be difficult, that way will be the best way. And so by being holy, they will conquer, they will inherit this wonderful future. The church in Philadelphia is to conquer by trusting in the power of Christ and not in the power of the world, which seems to overwhelm them. And that's the struggle that we have today, isn't it? We look at the world around us, and it is so big, and we are so small, and, and we wonder if the church is declining because we've got it wrong, and maybe we should be more like the world. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, the power of Christ, though it appears weak by the world's standards, will always enable you to overcome. And so entrust yourselves to that. That is how you will conquer, through the foolishness of the gospel and not by the wisdom of this world. And to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says you conquer by rejecting the standards of the world. You put your trust in wealth and riches and material blessings, and you think that says God is blessing you, but that's not what these things speak of. You are trusting these things to be your Savior, and that is not how you conquer this world. You don't trust in money or possessions. You trust in Jesus, and you must cling to Him because there is no other Savior. We conquer, in short, through Jesus alone. We entrust ourselves to Him, and in entrusting ourselves to Him, we are told that we inherit this everlasting life and this wonderful future reality called heaven where there is no more suffering and death, and yet this future hope is how we conquer in this life here and now. This is how this is put into practice. Our conquering doesn't look like the world's understanding of victory, where you march in, you dominate someone, and you take what you want, and they understand that they are beaten and you have won. That's how our world works, isn't it? That's how any conflict in our world has worked over the years, save one. The death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross, and by the world's standards, 
loses. He dies. His enemies triumph over him. Satan has won. Surely in this moment, as he is on the cross, all of these uh, Jewish authorities come out and mock him and say, if you're really the Son of God, just come down off the cross, not recognizing the irony that staying on the cross is the means by which he wins over all. And so our victory over war, over conflict, over sin and death in this life comes by that path not the world's path. We rob the world of its power over us, and we cling to Christ in whom there is true power. And we can understand how this gives us victory in this life when we think about our world today. In the world today, we recognize that over the past two years, much of our freedoms have been taken away. Now, we might have voluntarily been quite happy with giving up those uh, freedoms, and yet we recognize we have a government that could, if it chooses to, just take away our right to go somewhere, to come to church. Now, we might think, oh, there would be an outcry. Well, maybe there would, and maybe there wouldn't. But there is power there. They have the ability. Plenty of nations have done that and are doing that in the world today. North Korea, you're not allowed to go to church. China, you're only allowed to go to the state church. And if any other church exists, they'll squash it and cart all the people off to prison and work camps and whatever else it might be. States have the power to do that. States have the power to take away almost anything from us, and yet the only power a government has over you is that power to say, I will take something that you value. Because if you don't care about it, there is no power there. If it doesn't hold you, then there is no influence there. It doesn't affect you in the same way. And that's what John is relaying to the church in the first century. If you fear death, if you fear what sin can do to you, it will hold you, it will keep you within its power. You'll do anything to avoid that. You'll compromise on everything. You'll give up on God. You'll follow the ways of the world. You'll do anything. But if these things have no grip on you, if you are not in any way held in fear by them, then you'll never do those things. You will always stay faithful to God. You'll worship Him and serve Him. And that is how you inherit everlasting life. You cut off their power. He who conquers in this world, we are told, has a place in a new reality, in a new heavens and a new earth, a world that will look like this one that God made originally very good and yet has been corrupted. It will be perfected and made whole, restored, made wonderful. Can you imagine a world where there is no more famine, no more drought, no more sickness, no more COVID, no more conflict, no more rebellion against people and between people and God, a world that is truly perfect and satisfying in every way. How wonderful a reality that is. That's this world. And God says, the only way to enter this world is to conquer, is to conquer sin and death, to have their hold on you relinquished. And it's a world that is prepared by God, that is fit for His people. And when we dwell together with God, we have a place in this wonderful reality. And we catch a glimpse of it here and now. We get to experience some of the joy of it here and now. That is being part of the church, a place where you have a whole family of people gathered around you who sacrifice for you, who bless you, who give you the things that you need so that you don't lack, 
anything, who pray for you, who support you, who cry with you when you're grieving, who laugh with you when you are overjoyed and go through times of plenty and blessing. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? A family you can trust. And I know it's not perfect. I know it isn't. But that is what the church is as God has instituted it. That is what we aspire to be, what we're constantly striving to grow into. We catch a glimpse of the world to come here and now. A place of peace and unity and blessing and joy. And the only way in is for us to conquer sin and death. And we can't do it, can we? The only way that can be done is through Jesus, what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. That in Christ, because he conquered sin and death through his death on the cross, because he was sinless and had no sin of his own to pay for, we find that we, when we are in him, when we trust in him, when we ask for forgiveness, when we commit ourselves to following in him, we're included in this new way, this new life, this new future. And that loosens our grip on the things of this life. Because I have that waiting for me. So what does this really matter? in the grand scheme of things. I don't need to fear anything in this life. The worst that can happen to me in this life, the death that awaits us all, will only hasten me to that wonderful place. So what do I have to fear? It's what Paul says, doesn't he, when he's writing to his churches, and he says, I just don't know what to do. I, I, I want to die and go and be with the Lord, because that's far better for me, but to stay and serve you would be better for you, and I'm torn, so I'm going to stay and serve you for a time. I think that's God's will but I'm so desperate to go and be with him. That's what I'm made for. That's what I long for. Death had no hold over Paul. So when he was thrown in prison, who cares? I can just preach to all the prisoners and they'll all be saved. And then when they send more guards in, I can preach to them and some of them will be saved. And when you send me new guards, then we'll just preach to them and some of them will be saved. And when you beat me, I'll praise the Lord. And if you let me go out of prison, I'm going to go on doing the thing you locked me up for in the first place. And if you kill me, I get to go and be with Christ. So what can you do? Nothing. Wouldn't it be great to live life with that kind of liberty? That sense of freedom wherever we go. There's nothing you can do to me. Because in the end, all you do to me will better my circumstances. You conquer us as a place in this new world, and Christ has conquered. And if we are in him, we have our place with him. He who conquers has a guarantee of this life. This isn't something that God holds out to us, a, sort of a carrot and a stick, where he holds out the promise of this to just get us through a difficult patch, to help us be a little bit more loyal, a little bit more faithful, and then he just sort of lets us get on with things. And then when we go astray again, brings the carrot out again to, to have us follow along and chase after him so that we stay obedient. God promises this. He gives us this guarantee. And one of the struggles of the early church that you hear the New Testament writers beginning to address was, if you promise people this, and it's a guarantee that can never be taken away, what's to stop them saying they'll follow Jesus and then just giving up after they feel they've gained this great prize? That's what the Jews were terrified of in the early church, and we've addressed some of that in Romans. Paul, you can't go around telling people that they have a guarantee of this life, because then they'll just stop following Jesus once they've got it. And we've gone through Romans, and uh, John goes through the whole book of Revelation saying that it is those who persevere. If you're just doing this to claim a prize and then go back to the old life, you never had the new life in the first place. That's not how it works. You persevere. 
And John says in in those opening chapters, well, Jesus says through John in the opening chapters of Revelation all the way through that it is to him who conquers, that is to him who perseveres and keeps going and keeps going. We conquer every day this world because this life is guaranteed. So we're always going to labor to that end. We're going to struggle. We're going to fail sometimes. There's maybe going to be weeks or months or years in our lives where we drift and we go off in the wrong direction and yet It is a guarantee to us. We will always be brought back to this true and living way we have in Jesus if we are His. Because He is always faithful. He is always true. He says this will be in the future, and so it must. He who conquers has a place in this new world. He who conquers has a guarantee of this new life. It can't be taken away by a government. can't be taken away by any group or individual. It's guaranteed by Christ in his work that was finished on the cross. That's why it says, and he said to me, it is done, verse 6. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. His point is, I was there at the beginning. I am there at the end. God is timeless. He sees and knows all things. And so he understands what he's doing. The work is finished. It is guaranteed. You are secure in my hands. And we find he who does not conquer, lastly, has no part in it. And this is in many ways the sting in the tail of this passage, the sad end to what begins as a hopeful, glorious, wonderful chapter. We find that it is those who want themselves that do not inherit this life. Why would they even want this life? It is a life devoted to God, and they don't want God, they want themselves. So, they wouldn't want this life. It is those who only want pleasure and satisfaction but their satisfaction is grounded in what they can see and understand here and now, and not in what God provides. And so, they wouldn't want this life. And it is those who want power above all things, because power resides only with God. And any power that we have in this life is derived from Him and from His authority. To have power in and of ourselves is to believe the serpent in the the Garden of Eden. You can be like God, but you can't. None of us can. And any who want to be God will not want to share a heaven, a wonderful future with God who will always sit over them in authority and absolute power. And we find that those who do not want this life, who do not conquer, who give in to the way of the world and live according to its rules, its standards, its means will receive the things that they can get from this world and no more. That will be it. Temporary pleasure, fleeting and insufficient, and in the end, ultimately, death that will seem so much like it burns constantly because we wanted so much and yet have failed. But John says, as this book comes to its glorious future, on into the rest of chapter 21 and chapter 22, this is not so for those who conquer, those who are weak by the world's standards, those who lack, those who have to give up so much of what others have around them because what they want is to serve and love God. When we do these things, when we conquer in Jesus' name by His power, this fearful future has no grip on us either. Because in the end, what we are guaranteed is that Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. The way this grounds itself in our lives here today is not simply in a wistful hope. 
it's to recognize that in our world, as the church grows, as the kingdom of God spreads, as the influence of Christ spreads throughout our society, more and more people do not fear sin and death, for it has been broken, and for them is being removed, is being taken away, and one day will pass away altogether. And so, in this world, as the church grows, we should expect to see conflict begin to ebb away and cease. It will still be there, because people are people wherever they go. And yet, there is a reason for it to be done with. There is a reason for it to be viewed as not the way for us to go into the future. There is a power there to see it begin to dissipate, begin to ebb away. We do this by living in light of the gospel, by living in light of this future hope, by placing our confidence not in the things of this world, but in the things of Christ. And so, this Remembrance Day, as we give thanks for those who have sacrificed for a peaceful future, we must remember the sacrifice that Christ has made for us to guarantee a completely perfect and peaceful eternity. And as we do so, we remember that we begin to see that life here and now. We begin to taste it right now as we see these things, these powers, these dreadful fears removed from our lives and a wonderful new life for each one of us today. We don't have the power to do away with sin and death in our and of ourselves. We don't have the power to do, do away with global conflict ourselves, but Christ does. And in the end, He will complete that work. And that is the ground of our hope, not just in the future, but here for today, for tomorrow when you get up and go back to your work, your family, or whatever else it might be that you have to do. So let us hope in that future, but live in that hope today. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us in sending us such a complete Savior, one who doesn't simply brush up our lives and make us a little better here and now, one who guarantees for us a wonderful reality free from sin and death, one who, in guaranteeing us that life, gives us this great hope that we can begin to live out this life here and now. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit and give us the power to live in light of this future reality. We want to see our lives here and now changed and not simply live with the wistful hope that one day things might be better. Lord God, free us from the slavery of fear that comes from sin and death. Lord, many of us who've been Christians for a long time still in our darker moments are willing to confess, Lord, that we recognize that fear still. We're worried about sickness. We're worried about what death might mean for us or for our family members. And Lord God, we confess that and we ask that you would give us confidence in the face of these things. They are not the end. They are not the last word. Jesus' victory is. And we are victorious in him. We conquer in him. Lord God, we thank you for that victory. And Lord, we ask that you would not only strengthen our church in light of it, but you would send us out to proclaim it to our family and to our friends, to the lost in this community around us. For Lord, we long to see people liberated from this one great abiding fear that enslaves our whole world. Lord God, we ask all this in the recognition that it has been accomplished in Jesus' name already. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would apply this truth to our lives and to our world today. Lord, help us 
to live it out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.